Hello, this is Rabbi Rob Doberson, and welcome to this edition of Wrestling and Dreaming. And I want to begin this episode of the podcast by expressing condolences to those who lost loved ones in the terrible tragedy that took place last week in Israel on Mount Maron during Lagba Omer, and also to express wishes and prayers for Shlema, a complete recovery for those who suffered injuries during that disaster. It was a terrible, terrible disaster, and I expressed my hopes for healing, for comfort, and for peace. This week and next week, I want to talk about the holiday of Shavuot, the holiday which begins on Sunday evening, May 16th. Of all of the major holidays of the year, and Shavuot certainly is a major holiday, Shavuot is probably the least well-known and, I think, the most underappreciated. It's a wonderful holiday. Perhaps the reason that it's not as well-known or not as, much, not as greatly appreciated is because to many people it lacks that signature moment or that signature ritual, the blowing of the shofar, the sitting at the Pesach Seder, building a sukkah. But Shavuot is really a fascinating holiday in its history, which is what I'm going to talk about here at this in this episode. And then in its in the traditions that we observe today regarding it, which I'll talk about in next week's episode. Today I want to share with you a text from a traditional source relating to the holiday of Shavuot as it was observed in the time of the temple, and to ask you to think about some questions relating to this text. It's always been one of my favorites, but in recent years I've started to look at it again and think about it quite a bit and wrestle with it a bit more than I used to. I used to just appreciate the text because I thought it was great for one particular reason. And then I realized there are many sides to it. And that's what I want to eventually get to in this podcast. But let's do the history of the holiday first, because the foundation is very important. Shavuot is one of the three festivals, the three pilgrimage festivals, Shalosh Regalim, days on which, according to the book of Deuteronomy, our ancestors were commanded to go to the place that God would choose to have God's name dwell there. And that eventually, of course, was interpreted as Jerusalem and the Beit Mikdash, the Holy Temple. And people made pilgrimages on Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Now, these three holidays coincide with three important moments in the agricultural year. Pesach was identified as the beginning of the barley harvest or the grain harvest. Shavuot, the time of the Bikurim, the first ripened fruits, and Sukkot, the final harvest. In terms of agriculture, we understand these holidays were critically important coming at the times that they did. But there was another aspect to two of the holidays, Pesach and Sukkot, that we see in the Torah also regarding the holidays. We know about Pesach, the celebration of the Exodus from Egypt. And we know about Sukkot, the recognition of God's protection of the people through the wilderness as symbolized by the Sukkah, by the huts. So even in times where our ancestors were no longer farmers to a great extent, and when the temple didn't exist, there was always a good reason to celebrate these holidays of Pesach and Sukkot. We could rely on the historical and philosophical theological stories of the Exodus from Egypt and the protection in the wilderness. 
And that's where Shavuot comes in. According to the Torah, there is no such historical connection with Shavuot. Shavuot is the holiday of the first fruits. Chag HaBikurim. And that's all that it is. Now, that happens to be quite a bit, as you'll see in a minute, but that's all that it is. Just Chag HaBikurim, the holiday of the first fruits. And this presented a problem when the temple was destroyed and when the people were scattered from the land and no longer bringing the first fruits. How do you keep the holiday alive if the only reason for the holiday doesn't exist anymore? There's no tradition of the Bikurim, then there should be no holiday of Shavuot. Well, somewhere along the line, and we're not sure exactly when, the rabbis of the tradition connected the date of Shavuot, 50 days after Pesach, the 6th of Sivan, as being, in fact, the day that the Torah was given at Mount Sinai. They had something to go on. The book of Exodus says that the revelation at Sinai took place in the third month of the Exodus. Nisan E.R. Sivan works very well. But there's no connection with that date until the rabbis made that connection during the rabbinic period, following the destruction of the temple, we assume. So Shavuot takes on the name of Ziman Matan Toratenu, the time of the giving of the Torah. And the rabbis accomplished two things by making this connection. First of all, they gave us a holiday to celebrate Torah. And I'm going to talk about that next week. And secondly, they saved the holiday of Shavuot. Now there was a reason to observe Shavuot, even if you couldn't bring the Bikurim, the first fruits. But let's talk about the first fruits because it's a, a fantastic tradition. In the book of Deuteronomy, we read that when the first fruits appeared, near the time of the holiday of Shavuot, the farmer would take from the first fruits, put them in a basket, and carry them up to the place God intended for the, to, to have God's name dwell there, again, Jerusalem and in later tradition. Would they, so the farmer would take the fruit, put it in the basket, bring it up, hand it to the priest, and say words that the book of Deuteronomy says that the farmer should say, Arami Oved Avi, my father was a wandering Aramean who went down to Egypt in meager numbers, and the Egyptians enslaved us, and God heard our cry. You might recognize those words because they're the foundation of the Magid, the storytelling section of the Pesach Seder. They're the verses that we make midrash, make interpretations on in order to talk about the story of the Exodus from Egypt. But their root, their source, is in the discussion of the holiday of Shavuot. And the Mishnah goes into great elaborating detail about how this ritual was done. The Mishnah says that the fruits were brought up to Jerusalem and the head of the procession was an ox whose horns were painted gold and who had a wreath of, of olive branches on his head. And there was music and there was celebration and the people came out of their homes and out of their stores, according to the Mishnah, to greet people coming up to Jerusalem and said, Batim l'shalom, you came in peace. It's a wonderful picture. You can take a look at the Mishnah uh, about, uh, about the Bikurim, about the first fruits, and you see this beautiful ritual that was done. And then comes the key moment. 
the moment when the farmer would hand the fruit over to the priest and would say these words. Well, according to the Mishnah, the farmer had to read the words. The farmer had to read the words. And, says the Mishnah, if a person did not know how to read, then the priest would prompt that person, apparently, according to the commentaries, by saying, Arami Ovedavi, and the person would respond, Arami Ovedavi, and go through each phrase that way. So, if you could read it yourself, you read it. If you couldn't read it yourself, the priest helped you by prompting you. Then the Mishnah says something just fantastic, so fascinating. Nimna umilhavi. People started refraining from bringing the first fruits. Why? Well, from the context, and according to most of the commentaries, it's clear that people were embarrassed. They were embarrassed that they had to have the priest read it for them. I don't know whether there was a separate line for non-readers or if you had to declare the fact that you couldn't read. By the way, that was probably very common in those days that farmers couldn't read, but still, there was that sense of embarrassment. Now, the job of the priests and the rabbis was to make sure people had the opportunity to observe the mitzvah, to observe the commandment, and they clearly were not happy about the fact that people were refraining from bringing the first fruits. So, a decision was made, according to the Mishnah, and that decision was that everyone would have the priest read it for them. Everyone would have the priest prompt them. No one would read it solely on their own. Whether you could read or you couldn't read, the priest prompted you. I love that. I've always loved that text since the first time I read it. What compassion. What sensitivity, what sense of inclusion, inclusiveness, and the sense of wanting everybody to feel a part, and nobody should be embarrassed. I love it. It was a wonderfully human effort by the rabbis to make sure that everyone was comfortable. But I have a question. Was everyone comfortable? Was everyone satisfied with that decision? I want you to think for a moment about the person who could read. Did that person have a right to say, you're taking some of the meaning out of the ceremony for me? I'm sensitive to other people, but this ceremony doesn't mean as much to me now because I have to stand there and repeat after the Kohen. I'd rather say it myself. Would that have been a fair criticism, a fair complaint? I want you to think about that a bit. And I want you to think about it in relation to ritual as we observe it today in the synagogue. Clearly, on a regular Shabbat morning, on a, at, a reg, at just the average service, there are people with different levels of expertise regarding the ritual. Does a person who knows the ritual really well, who knows Hebrew really well, do they have a right to complain if pagers are being announced constantly, which kind of interrupt the flow of the service? If they have to hear an explanation that they've heard 50 times about a particular prayer? If, do they have to, can they admit to being impatient if there are English readings? Or if the rabbi starts the sermon at Aleph Bet, so to speak, at the very ground level, 
without assuming any kind of knowledge. Is it right to complain about that? Or should we be absolutely willing to say, our, the, the meaning that I get out of the ritual is less important than the fact that everybody gets something out of it? It's not as easy a question as you might think. And I say that speaking as a rabbi who was on the pulpit for many years. I have a lot of sensitivity to people who would say something like that. I absolutely believe 100% that we shouldn't ignore or in any way denigrate people who don't know a lot about the ritual. We do need to give explanations. We do need to give page numbers. But I don't think we do anybody any good if during a ritual a ritual service, during a religious service, we go to the least common denominator. Sometimes we have to have people be willing <clears throat> to extend themselves a bit, to be challenged, and to accept the fact that there are others who have more of a background than they do. Because by serving those people, sometimes we're inspiring the people who are newcomers to learn more. And that's something that does bother me about the way that the Kohen did this. Maybe the idea that you could eventually read the Bikurim statement by yourself would be an incentive for somebody to learn to read. That might sound a little far-fetched, but maybe. And maybe when we start our classes or our divrei Torah or during the service at a higher level than some people are comfortable with, maybe that's an inspiration for them to learn more, as well as serving the needs of that more familiar group a little bit more. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about how you feel about that. I'd love to hear. You can always write to me at robdoberson.com through my website or or sending me a message through my Facebook page, or you can find my email on the synagogue website at Beth Israel in Ann Arbor. I'd love to hear what you think about it. And while you're thinking about ritual, think about something else. Think about the times in your life, whatever endeavor you're talking about, where you had expertise in a particular area. And for the purpose of being more inclusive or more sensitivity, someone asked you to do something that wasn't quite up to your level of expertise in order to fit into a community. And think about it the other way. Times where you felt completely alienated because people were setting the bar too high for you. How do we balance this? I want you to think about that. But I also want you to realize something that I just did. I took a text from the Mishnah about the Bikurim, about the first fruits, and brought it into a discussion about ritual today and, and inviting you to take it off the level of ritual and think about your life as a whole. How do we balance between the feeling, uh, being fulfilling the needs of every individual and yet fulfilling our own needs. How do we keep that balance? How do we compromise? How sensitive should we be? I'd love to hear from you if there are areas that you can think of in life in general 
outside of the synagogue where this question applies, and I'd like to hear what you think about it. We'll talk a little bit more about this next time when I begin to talk about Shavuot as the holiday of the giving of the Torah. Gives you a week to think about it, and I hope that you will. Until next time, thank you.